Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Hutchings. I'm a trainee pastor, a member of the church here. Uh, let me add my welcome uh, to Andrews from earlier. Um, these are some big truths here. That, that was a long reading. Uh, thank you to Andrew and Hazel for reading it so well. Um, why don't we Why don't we pray now before we dig into these verses together? Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you that every part of scripture is your word to us. Give us soft hearts this morning as we reflect on these words together. Amen. Um, last Sunday, uh, we began by considering the structure that almost every narrative has. Um, an exposition or setting of the scene, a conflict, a climax and a resolution. Uh, and we saw how that played out in uh, chapters four, five, six and the beginning of seven. Um, stepping out a little bit further this morning, um, there are commonly thought to be just seven different types of narrative, uh, seven story structures that all narratives fit into, whether it's the myths of ancient Greece, a Shakespeare play, a Jane Austen novel or a James Bond film, just, just seven story structures. Um, they are rags to riches, tragedy, comedy, overcoming a monster, quest, birth or rebirth, and voyage and return. And the story of Exodus, uh, though it's based on true events, um, is no different in the way that it's been written for us in our Bibles. Um, and, and this passage, uh, the, these four chapters, uh, fall into the overcoming a monster narrative type, uh, with a hero facing a villain, an enemy who's threatening in a battle in which the hero appears to be outmatched. And as we look at this narrative now, uh, we'll focus on the three people who are most frequently featured, uh, Moses, Pharaoh and God. Uh, so first, who Moses is? Well, Moses is an obedient servant. Uh, chapter two of Exodus was taken up with um, Moses' arrival on the scene, disobedience and disappearance to Midian. The subject of chapters three and four was whether Moses would obey this most astonishing out of the blue call from God back to Egypt. And chapters five and six asked the question of whether Moses would continue to obey, as Phil was just reminding us, uh, even though his initial approach to Pharaoh seemed to have made things so much worse. Well, in chapter 7 to 10, we see the answer. We see the most extraordinary picture of obedience in Moses. Not a single question, qualm or flicker in Moses now. He is utterly confident in the promises God has given him in chapters 3 and 4 and at the beginning of 6 and 7. And he is now God's trusting an obedient servant who does exactly what God commands him to do time and again, no matter what the opposition. And of course, um, when we look at Moses as God's obedient servant, we aren't first and foremost to then look in the mirror and ask whether we're obedient too. We're to look to Jesus, God's ultimate obedient servant. In Moses' continued obedient trust of God, despite terrible opposition, we're to see a shadow of Jesus' 
astonishing obedience of his father as he went to the cross. Jesus, who faced an enemy far greater than Pharaoh. Jesus, who faced death, sin and Satan and the wrath of his father. Jesus, who didn't just have to um, return from Midian, but who had to become incarnate, take on human flesh, like one of his creatures. And yet he obeyed. He trusted his father and he went through it all. God's ultimate obedient servant, of whom Moses is a faint shadow. And as we see his obedience, and as we see Moses's, doesn't it move our hearts to want to obey too? As we reflect on how far Moses has come from his stuttering protestations in chapter four, as we sit with Jesus in Gethsemane and marvel that he could pray, not what I will, but what you will, in light of everything he knew that meant. Doesn't that bring us to our knees in prayer that we might, by the Spirit's power, obey the one who is so obedient for us? There's no place for cold-hearted duty in true Christian worship and obedience. Moses was God's obedient servant. But what about Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh was a hard-hearted rebel. Pharaoh was a hard-hearted rebel. Um, for many of us, th these verses don't read very comfortably. As we hear of judgment upon judgment upon judgment, we wonder whether God's being a bit harsh on Pharaoh. And then does there have to be nine plagues? Couldn't we have skipped straight to the, to the end? Did it have to be this bad? But before we let Pharaoh off the hook too quickly, there are four observations from the text I think it's worth making. Firstly, Pharaoh ignores his powerless magicians. We might forgive Pharaoh after the first couple of plagues for not obeying God, when his own magicians seem to be able to conjure up the same tricks, uh, turning water to blood in chapter 7, verse 22, and bringing frogs in chapter 8, verse 7 whether by sleight of hand or through evil spiritual forces, we don't know. But, but note too that they don't seem to be able to stop or reverse Moses' plagues, only imitate them. But by the third plague, the gnats, Pharaoh's magicians are no longer able to imitate the miracles. In fact, they attribute them to God. Chapter 8, verse 18, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And by the sixth plague of boils, they cannot even stand before Moses in chapter 9, verse 11. They're in such pain. And by 10, verse 7, his servants are begging Pharaoh to reconsider. How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship their Lord, the Lord their God. Do you not yet realise that Egypt is ruined? But Pharaoh doesn't play, pay the blindest bit of difference to this clear warning from God, from his own uh, magicians. 
He's fighting against God and he's out to win. So Pharaoh ignores the powerlessness of his own magicians. Uh, secondly, Pharaoh shows no concern for his own people. He shows no concern for his own people. I'm sure you felt the, um, the devastation of these plagues, as Andrew and Hazel read, from the hail that um, beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree, chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, to 10, verses 13 to 15. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left. But the worst of the suffering always seems to fall upon Pharaoh's people. Not the man himself. They are the ones digging along the Nile for fresh water. In chapter 7, verse 24, they are the ones piling up stinking frog corpses. In chapter 8, verse 14, not once does Pharaoh express any care or concern or even mention their suffering. His ego is his sole concern and the victory he's out to win against this God. So Pharaoh ignores his powerless magicians. He shows no concern for his people. And third, Pharaoh is a hypocrite. As the plagues intensify, we see him repeatedly attempt to barter with Moses, either offering what Moses wants in the second and seventh plagues, or trying to, to broker a deal, a compromise that they sacrifice within Egypt or nearby in plague four in chapter eight, verses 25 and 28, or that the men go to sacrifice in plague eight, chapter 10, verses eight to 11, or that all the people can go, just not the animals in plague nine, chapter 10, verses 24 to 26. But these are not genuine offers. These are the words of a man who, when the heat is on, will say whatever he can to get himself out of trouble. A man who feels no qualms in going back on his word, as he does time and again, as he hardens his heart. Chapter 8, verse 15, verse 32. Chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. Pharaoh is a hypocrite. His attempts to manipulate and deceive God are plain to see. But even so, we might still feel some sympathy for Pharaoh, perhaps. As we are repeatedly told, as we were in chapter 4, verse 21, to 7, verse 3, last week, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What chance did he have of doing the right thing? How can it be fair for God to judge him when God hardened his heart so that he would disobey? Well, this is a hugely difficult question, one I feel very out of my depth trying to answer. But let me try to give a few tentative reflections in the hope that they may be of some use. At first, this hardening seems to be specific, relating to a specific decision, a specific command of God at a specific moment in Pharaoh's life is pushing the text too far, I think, 
to assert that this hardening must have been permanent and that Pharaoh was decisively barred from eternal life with no chance of repentance. I just don't think we can say that from what we have here so tightly is the language of hardening centered around this, this one key subject, the release of the Israelites. This hardening is specific. And secondly, Pharaoh was still responsible. We're told many times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Chapter 8, verse 15, verse 32. Chapter 9, verse 34. In Romans 1, verse 24, writing of sinful humanity, Paul says that God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. A significant way in which to understand God's judgment is that it is him giving people over to what they want. Freedom from him and his rule. Freedom to follow their sin. Pharaoh rebels against God again and again and again. And so God gives him what he wants. The freedom to disobey. So just because we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart does not mean that Pharaoh was not responsible for his rejection of God. So it's specific. Pharaoh is responsible. And thirdly, it is and it has to be ultimately up to God. After quoting Exodus 9, verse 16, and describing Pharaoh's stubbornness in Romans chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Ultimately, it is up to God, not us, who he will save. And we know that. We know if we're a Christian that we're only saved because God chose us, because he showed his grace to us, because he picked us to be his children. But that coin has another side. Not everyone will be saved. Not everyone will be chosen by God. And that is the result of their own sinful, rebellious decision but it is also the result of a decision God has made. And in a culture that places so much weight on individual autonomy, on the control, the power, the right we have as individuals to determine everything about us, we find that a hard pill to swallow in 21st century UK. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Paul writes in verse 29 of Romans 9, what right has the clay to condemn the potter? For a reason that is beyond us, it is to God's glory. Paul writes, all will be saved. It is ultimately up to God. It has to be. And of course, we don't know who God has chosen. We can and must never write anyone off as if we knew God's plan for them and his work in their soul. 
but we must accept that ultimately it is up to God who he saves. But who are we to tell God what he should and shouldn't do? This is a really difficult idea, one which many Christians, including me, wrestle deeply with. If it's an issue for you, I'd encourage you to read Romans, um, the whole thing, but particularly chapters 9 and 10. And or I'd encourage you to find an older, wiser Christian to talk to about it. Uh, Phil or I or any of the elders would be happy to chat. Who is Pharaoh? He's a hard-hearted rebel. But just as we are not Moses, we are also not Pharaoh. He was a specific man in a specific place at a specific time who God used for specific purposes. We are not Pharaoh. And though, of course, we're, we're right to hear something of warning, for we know that later on the Israelites too hardened their hearts to God in the wilderness. Do not harden your hearts. David writes in Psalm 95. And the writer of Hebrews echoes too. It would be unwise to see the hard-hearted rebellion of Pharaoh and not question where in our hearts we might be hardening ourselves against God's word and willing to hear it and refusing to obey. Finally, uh, we've seen who Moses is. We've seen who Pharaoh is. Who is God in this passage? Well, God is the Lord of all. God is the Lord of all. While Moses and Pharaoh certainly take up much of the narrative, the main character, the person about whom this section is really all about, is God. Remember Pharaoh's question from chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? Well, here is your answer, Pharaoh. Here is your answer. These plagues were sent to reveal the God who sent them. Who is the Lord? He is God. He is the only God. And he is the Lord of all. Again and again, I don't know if you spotted as, um, as it was read for us, God explains why he's sending these plagues. And let's zoom in on, on just one explanation. Um, if you've got your Bible open, find chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you, and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It is glorious and sobering stuff. And don't we see God's power so extraordinarily in this account? As we see God wipe the floor with each of Egypt's false gods, 
that it was Happy, the god of the Nile, or Hecate, the frog-headed goddess of fertility. And as we see God wipe the floor with Pharaoh's sorcerers, as we see God protect his people living in Goshen and all who fear his word in 9 verse 20. And as we see God display the most extraordinary power over every part of nature, his creation. It is impossible to read these verses and come away thinking God is anything other than extraordinarily powerful. Who is the Lord? Pharaoh asked. He is God. He is the only God. And he is the Lord of all. And here is, um, here is where we find ourselves in this passage. For we're not really Moses, nor are we Pharaoh, nor are we even the Israelites who, who barely get a mention in this passage. No, we're the people who came after. The people of chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. I've hardened his heart, God says to Moses there, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. Who are we? We're the descendants. We're the children and grandchildren, whether by blood or all grafted in. Here is the application for us. We are the ones who hear this incredible display of God's power and who marvel and worship our God who is the Lord. And we, well, we have something even greater to marvel at. We have an even greater display of God's great power, of who he is. We have the incarnation, God's word personified and made human. And we have the cross, where God the Son took on not just one superpower, but every human and spiritual enemy, sin, Satan, death, the very wrath of his father, and won. Resurrected, ascended, is seated on high. We look to Christ and we marvel and we worship. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can read of this extraordinary display of your power. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have seen an even greater display of who you are and of your power. May we marvel and may we worship our God, who is the Lord of all. Amen.